Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As a companion to my own laptop lifestyle, the Business Creators Radio Show goes where I go, and we take you to those places where you have those mastermind moments. What's going on? Do you hear birds in the background? Do you hear cars driving by? Do you hear ambient noise from a nearby table, the gentle hum of an air conditioner in the background? Where are these places where you have these encounters and you have these conversations that give you the aha moments, the inspirations you weren't expecting when you meet the people who could possibly change your life? Well, I urge you right now to get your pad of paper and two pens out because we are going to have a conversation that has been long in coming here. And this is somebody I've wanted to connect with and have on the Business Creators Radio Show for about three months. But between us being nine time zones apart and just the work we've had to do to get our schedules to match, we finally made it happen. And I'm going to give a little bit of disclosure to our audience as well. This is the second time we've done it. The first time... <laughs> The lords of the internet said, nah, 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 you're going to have to work harder than this. So new internet services and new routers later, we're going to try it again. So I'm going to introduce you in just a moment to a gentleman named A.J. Lawrence. He's a serial entrepreneur with multiple exits, an angel investor, growth expert, and host of the Beyond Eight Figures podcast. With over a quarter of a century of, exception, of exceptional experience in industries ranging from consumer goods to SaaS, he uses data-driven insights to nurture lasting and sustainable growth. He calls himself a journeyman entrepreneur, and I'm really curious to find out more about that definition, because he finds great joy in learning from people who have achieved more than he did in finding ways to use their insights, which kind of, if you think about it, goes along with the entire premise of this show that I described just a moment ago. Maybe this could be the best fit we've ever had. At any rate, AJ Lawrence, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, thank you so much for having me on a second time. Um, yes. Well, first time, well, first time for our listeners, second time yes. for me. But, uh, as my, <laughs> yes. but, as our, but as my microbiology professor said, second chances are sweet. Yes, they when are. He, when, he, when, when he had to give back our test because everybody failed and let us change our answers. <laughs> well, <laughs> you got lucky then. But yeah. no, no, thank you. Because yes, my internet decided it didn't want to work last week. So yeah, no, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for having me on because I really do enjoy your show. And I love how much you kind of get in with your guests around what is really important about being an entrepreneur. You know, I jokingly call myself a journeyman entrepreneur because I've been doing this for, you know, I had a company in my early 20s, I had one in my early 30s, and then I started one in my late 30s that I sold in my late 40s. 
but like I've I don't feel like I've ever cracked the code. You know, I'm not um, you know, I'm not going off into my billionaire spaceship and I'm not, you know, I'm not even at that mythical eight figures. I've done well, you know, very small violin. I've had some seven-figure exits. Um, so you know, I get to kind of, you know, there's very little, you know. I, I know I'm very gift, uh, not gifted. I am blessed from all this, but no, I'm a journeyman entrepreneur because there's so much for me to learn. And like you, I love to talk to entrepreneurs who are doing cool things. And you know, this is why I was excited about here. You've been doing this for so long and your conversations are so cool. And I'm just getting, I'm just learning. I've only been doing this for a year and a half. I'm still learning how to like really learn from other entrepreneurs so thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, and I appreciate, and, and, and again, it's so much fun to have you here. Uh, the next thing that we like to do here, since you have checked out our show before, you're aware that the first thing I do is I read off the bio. And <laughs> yours is so impressive. I'm not sure if I'm worthy to be here in your presence. And this is my show. Now, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. We already got into the definition of the term journeyman entrepreneur, which is great. But what we invite our guests to do is beyond the bio. Tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you here to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, you know, the easiest way for me is I've always been someone who's been playing around on the internet from, you know, the eighties, one of those kids, you know, war games. I was like, Oh, come on. This is, you know, I'm sorry. There's probably only like a few of you out there who remember the movie War Games, but you know, um, I've loved this space for a long, long time. And I literally, in the early 90s, right before the web hit, started a company just for the chance that I could make a living from doing the stuff I loved. Yeah. And I realized over the different, you know, years and my efforts to create other companies that this opportunity we get as entrepreneurs to create things we want to see in the world. Now, first it was just to survive, but as I've grown up, um, I've been able to kind of get a little more skilled at this game and still realize there's so much more. So I want to create more. I want to, you know, these days I've gone through building and selling companies not as well as I wanted to. And I talk with a lot of entrepreneurs who get stuck in that, what I call that first big transition point. You finally got the business off. You've created something out of nothing. You get up to the upper six, low seven. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, there's, this is harder. How can this be harder? Um, that's the part I get fascinated because I bounced. I've only a couple of times gone past it, but I've hit that a few times and bounced back or sold at that point. And it is such a big transition point to understand how to go further. So for me, I've been over the years more and more diving into this space, literally to buying the podcast Beyond Eight Figures just over a year and a half ago. Um, so I could explore what it means to get into that and get past it and to help other entrepreneurs go further along on their journeys and not get stuck. Right. Yeah. Now, what you use the term journeyman entrepreneur, and mm-hmm. you also share the idea of deliberate entrepreneurial practice. Yes. Share how that's the key to long-term success. So 
what does that mean and how does that work? So what I realized in interviewing a lot of my guests was um, they had various efforts that they were consistently doing, they were working on, and some had their own formulas and processes, but you know they were kind of broad all over the place. But in looking at it, I realized that there was ability to not just work on your business. Most everything that talks right. about entrepreneurism is about your tool, i.e. your business, not about you as an entrepreneur. Um, that to me was, I thought, something missing because here I am, I've started multiple businesses and I've been multiple times in situations where I wanted to do things. And yes, it is a little bit easier now that I've done this a few times and I make whole new mistakes because I don't make the really basic ones. I make more stupid ones um, when I go and create new businesses. But I realized that there probably was a way to be a better entrepreneur, not just a better business creator. And yeah. um, as I was talking with some of my guests, I realized that the concept of deliberate practice, you know, not the actual words, because it's still kind of a little weird when you talk about deliberate practice. It's, you know, but the practices of it started coming up repeatedly. So I jokingly said, okay, it's time for me to start practicing deliberate entrepreneur, which is just this concept of like, look, let's identify where you want to be going, how you're going to do it, what form of measurement, and then consistently evaluate your progress to figure out if you're doing the right thing and if you need work on different areas as you go along. And then, you know, kind of in an incremental process, continue to develop more practice to it. So it's, you know, I think the easiest way I always say is like, okay, everyone tells you, you need, you need, Um, everyone tells you, you need this like mission driven business, or they become these hot things. Yeah. And there are, and I was amazed. There are so many entrepreneurs who really do live mission driven business lives. They are creating things, but so much of the stuff that's out there is, I think just selling stuff. They're telling you, oh, you do this, this, and this, and then you'll, you can do it. It's not the realities of building a mission-driven life. So talking to the people and doing it, I realized it was more of incrementally doing the work that was necessary to just move the concept a little further, you know, go from like, okay, I want to be able to do this to, all right, I'm going to identify how this impacts that and just, you know, incremental progress directionally correct again and again, you know, how do you become a master? You chop the wood, you carry the water. What do you do when you're a master? You chop the wood, you carry the water. It's that same thing, just being more deliberate, understanding what you're trying to do and consistently provide feedback to, on where you're going to then get a little bit better each day. You know, that, what's that idea? If you're doing just a, yeah, if you do 1%, improvement in your business every day over a year, you're going to be you know, multitudes higher. Well, the same thing is for you as an entrepreneur. What can you do to get better at being an entrepreneur? 
Right. There's a, there, I have a few thoughts about this and yeah. we can take them in turn. The first thing that comes to mind is, and I cover this in my book, Groundhog Days, an event, not a business strategy. This is not the most detailed thing, but to me, it is a very deliberate step of, uh, what do you think in your experience, first of all, let's ask you, is the fastest way for a startup to move into revenue? Trench warfare. Trench warfare? Yeah, I always call it trench warfare. It's it's basically direct networking. It's direct sale of you know whatever type of offering. You build your business model to be ugly as quickly as possible and get refined over time. Now, uh, obviously, yes. if you're you know, selling, you know, digital products off the things you have to, you have to modify your model to it. But, you know, I've seen people build really cool businesses just literally on their ability to spit out 140 character, 148 character, I should know that uh, characters it's, it's, multiple it's, times a day. Yeah. It's, well, it's 280 now, but no, yeah, 280. I get your point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually not far off from my definition of it. My definition of it is get paid to do something. And I've yep. seen this. I can give you a tale of two startups. And both of these are people I know. They're friends of mine. Uh, one of them is a current client. Uh, the other is uh, somebody who I'm still in touch with. It's a friend of mine. Awesome people. So I'm not going to give any details to which company is which. But there are, and they both have happy endings. So I'm happy to share both these stories. The startup number one, uh, I remember that it had meeting after meeting after meeting for a whole year. And after that whole year, they had not even gotten out an opt-in offer. Hmm. And I remember sitting at one of the weekly meetings of this thing and one of the people on the startup committee, I even I can even still see his hand gestures where he's doing the thing up and down with his hands saying, we cannot put an opt-in offer out there until we define what we're doing. Do you need to really need a year for that? Well, that well, that startup just kind of faded away. I remember that. I remember that uh, the last meeting that I had with the uh, with the founder and co-founder is we just wanted to meet with you to tell you that we don't need to meet with you anymore. Now, the happy ending is is that the founder uh, a few years later reemerged on the scene with that same brand. And how did they do it? Not so much through meetings by by simply saying, I got the curriculum and I'm doing a course in two weeks. I got 10 tickets available for sale. Who wants them? Sold out. Nice. Jump-started the thing. And he even told the story about this. I can't remember all the details of it, but I think basically it came down to somebody close to him. It might have been his daughter. It might have been his niece. It might have been his uh, best friend or something saying, look, you've already created it. Just sell it. And he thought, I'll try this and see if it works. And son of a gun. <laughs> and, it, and it's actually becoming a really fast growing thing over the past year or two. I hear about it on a lot of radar screen. It's really moving along. Now, there's this other startup. Uh, and they had been in startup mode for, I think, three years by the time I located them. I remember the first six months they were my client. Uh, I twice flew across the country for three-day retreats with their team where we did all the usual, let's look at the logo again. Let's uh, reevaluate the strategic plan. Let's look at our avatars again. Let's look at our revenue projections. Let's do PowerPoints. Let's have Q&A sessions. Uh, Let's uh, try and solve all the world's problems while we're right here and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
and meetings and uh and at one point this this one client account was generating so many emails i had to go to the owner of the company and say look um we need to do something about this email hell because I'm spending so much time every day sifting through this cover your ass CC warfare that I'm going to have to start charging more because the amount of time I'm spending sifting through this, finding out if anything is even relevant to me. So how did we break them out of that? They made a partnership with somebody, somebody who had a curriculum to teach so yeah. their partner had a curriculum to teach. They had, through all, the, all this startup stuff, what they did have was a sizable mailing list because they've been doing a lot of email marketing and list development. So you put the hustle with the muscle, so to speak. They yeah. watched the course and noticed similarities, said, we have 20 tickets available. Who wants them? Sold out. And now you have that shift from meetings about meetings to have meetings to we have a deliverable on the line. We have been paid to put something out there. We got to get that out there. Sold the first ticket for that offer. I think within an hour of putting it out there, then over the course of the first day, I think they got up to like two or three. So we're on our way to our 20. And, uh, and then the, and then the owner of the startup said, uh, you know, I, I was wondering I was wondering, since we got things moving now, uh, do you you think that we should get together in in South Carolina and have a retreat to discuss our (laughs) – and and by the time I even saw that email, because I was busy actually with another client doing something, and I came back and I was checking up and I said, I saw every single other person already replied to say, no, we're too busy. We got to get this program going. So the shift, and I cover this in my book, is – that once you get that customer to sign on the dotted line, the line that is dotted, or fill out the credit card form that is secure, you're not going to be having meetings about meetings anymore. It becomes about fulfillment. And what you've ultimately done is brought on your true top marketing guru, your customer. Yeah. I, I ask this question all the time. Who is your top marketing guru? And they'll start naming names. Uh, they'll usually throw in their own coach, and then they'll mention the five top names you're supposed to say are the big visionary leaders in sales and marketing. But the answer is your customer. Your customer is the one who makes the decision whether or not they sign on that line is dotted, that is dotted or fill out that credit card form that is secure or submit that payment through ACH. They make everything happen. Yeah. If you're willing to listen. See, they, you know, I see a lot of companies that have clients trying to jump through the hoops to use their service and they just, they're not paying attention because they have their vision, not how the customer, you know, is seeing it. And lo and behold, you know, clients, the customers get a little tired after a while and they stop wanting to be that marketing guru for them. And then they find someone else to get excited about. <laughs> so, yeah, I've seen that so many times. That's such a great way of saying that. that. Yeah. That, and see, again, this is the mastermind principle in action. It's like I set up the pins, you roll the strike and vice versa. Uh, you got You got your guru on board. Are you going to listen to what they have to say? To me, you can spend seven years in product development, but there's no substitute 
for actually putting it out there on the market and finding out the extent to which you need meet a customer's expectations. And if you're not meeting their expectations, since there's actual money involved, you're going to be a lot more motivated to find a way to meet those expectations. Well, I mean, just think back to like the example you just gave. And, you know, I know you've talked about like how, you know, employees work and, you know, if they're even going to work for a company and stuff like that. But right. think about it. You know, it is so true that everyone else but the CEO, and as a CEO, I kind of know this feeling. I need to be important. Oh, no, I don't. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone else, the moment, you know, they were busy beforehand, before they bought the, you know, before they did the partnership and all that. But the moment they had real stuff that was creating value, they were just like, oh, I'm busy now. And it was the type of busy they got excited about. Uh-huh. And that is the thing that we forget so often. It's like, yes, it's so easy to get be busy with work, to do the test. They, hey, let's do 20 polls. Let's do this and that. But the best way to get your people excited is to find a way to get your customers excited. And the way to do that is to get your team excited. So, you know, you create that feedback loop between them. <laughs> Yeah, it's like if you can get those marketing gurus, and I'm going to steal that from you. Ha! Um, if you can get those marketing gurus on, you'll turn your own team, you know, into you know super excited folk. I couldn't agree more. And there are differences between the types of things that keep you busy versus the things that are valuable. Uh, you have probably heard from the TV that these goddamn millennials are so lazy and they've ruined the workforce and it's because of them that everything's come to a screeching halt and nobody has loyalty anymore and uh, and everybody's just in it for themselves. You heard that before? <laughs> and every millennial that I've ever had work with me or I've worked with, I'm like, uh, they're amazing people. Where the fuck did they, excuse my language. Where, oh, no, 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 where no, does no, this no, come no, no, from? No, 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 it's, 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 it's allowed here. In fact, I have a cadre of listeners who wait, where's the F-bomb? But you did it for me this time. Yeah. But I always love, it's like when you look at your episodes and they're on Apple and you see an E next to it. And I'm like, I don't even remember cursing on this episode. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I got the E. Nice. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> How so, did the word, when did it happen? Okay. Right. Yes. So here's my point. And I have some credibility on this, not only because I'm a Gen Xer. I was born in 1976. So I've actually been told I'm oh, kind of a cusper. I'm, I'm kind of I a cusper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a cusper actually, because the millennial generation kicked in, I think either three or four years later depending on who's counting then you have your gen zers and all the ones that are above and below that and what have you you know we hear so much about how these millennials are lazy so here's what's really happened i agree with you that the millennials that's just a term that people use generically to define everybody who's uh, at a certain age or younger these this is these are the first generations that had access to information that enabled them to challenge the generational patterning that had been foisted upon their parents up until that time. That's what we have going on here. I remember when I was an adolescent, I didn't have access to the internet until I was in college. I didn't know what the internet was until I was in college. And I shudder at how many 
lies I just sat there and took because I did not have a way of accessing different information. And I don't think that some of the people who were, quote unquote, lying to me even realized they did it. It's just what they had always been told. And there was still that pattern of, you know, you you uh, work hard, you study hard, you find a company, preferably a big company, and you are loyal and dedicated and you put in your time. And after 40 years, you get your pension and your gold watch and your shack in Fort Lauderdale. By the time they were telling me that, that stuff was already disappearing. Yeah. Fast forward just 10 years, just 10 years. We're talking 2003. This is the year I decided to become an entrepreneur. I just finished my MBA in human resource management at Duquesne University. I was at that point where I had decided that my initial goal becoming a, a training and development director for a Fortune 100 wasn't really where I wanted to go. What I actually wanted was to become a full bore entrepreneur, but I full bore entrepreneur, but I didn't know what I didn't know or what questions to ask. I thought it was going to take forever. So in the meantime, I was just looking for some kind of fairly high paying job with a fun company that would enable me to live a comfortable lifestyle and have a lot of money to invest in a startup. That's what I was looking for. And I knew I wasn't going to get, and I knew I wasn't going to get that at the job I had at the time. Well, anyway, I, uh, one of the companies that I interviewed with, believe it or not, was Blockbuster Video. <laughs> no, it must uh, have been it, fun. It, uh, I'm, glad I, I'm glad that one didn't work out, as history shows. But what appealed to it at the time is I would have immediately gone into a management position, which would have involved training. Uh, it, was in a, it was in a market that had very high upward mobility very quickly if you were motivated. And... I was already seeing, and I was seeing the flexibility and how my work would have gone there would have given me plenty of time to work on my startup. It felt like something that I could easily do for three years. And I'm thinking, I'm going to sign up for a company just for three years. Well, not fast forward just a, it might have been even just a day or two later. And I was speaking with somebody who was a friend of mine at the time. And he, he said, well, you know, regardless of anything, you were getting, you've had that job for two years while you were in MBA school. You were leaving there anyway. It's like, yeah, kind of. I ended up getting diagonally promoted there from staying for two more years. But that's another story. Uh, but uh, he said, well, yeah, that's what you got to do. It's like, what? Well, yeah, yeah. If you, if, you, if you just keep working for one company for too long, people are going to look at your resume and say, what does this Adam guy do? He just sits around. He's not innovative. He's not motivated. Why would we want to hire him if he's worked for the same company for 10 years? Let me say that again for those in the back. Yeah. Why would we want to hire this guy if he's just worked for one company for 10 years? Whoa, there's a shift. And this was 20 years ago. Now we're talking about the great resignation. And now it's getting to be, it's getting to be so much fun because, uh-huh. you know, look, it, the ability of more and more people to be able to create their own path and not have to worry about a company is expanding. You know, it used to be just, you know, first it was the coders, then it was the digital uh-huh. folk. Now all of a sudden more and more white collar folks are like, wait, I don't need to be here in the office. I could actually 
Yeah, or my favorite, I can do two jobs at once. Or I just talked to someone who claims he's doing four. And I'm like, God bless you uh-huh. um, <laughs> remotely. But it's like, you know, they don't need to be, you know, they don't need things that are there because it's good for the company, not for you, even though there's a lot of, you know, rah, rah said to it. You know, they know what's real. People know what's real. And that's yeah. why I think we need as entrepreneurs to create real things. Now you don't have, there's no one given path to that. You don't have to partake in any one direction on the political or whatever spectrum you can choose your own. And there's going to be people on that spectrum who will join you. Um, Some of the spectrum, I probably don't want to actually see what you're building, but still, you know, go build what's going to fit and find your people and build to that. That's what I think is so important and so cool to be able to do these days. Yeah. So where I was going with my meandering story, let's bring it to the point now, is that, again, it was the quote-unquote millennials were the first generation that had access to information enabled them to powerfully challenge the narrative. So they're not lazy. They're not unmotivated. They are the first generation, and with the generations that are following them, it's just simply a matter that they want to feel like the work that they do makes a difference and that their own contributions enhance the world just by them being part of it. So the idea of doing something because some authority figure said, I said so, well, who are you to say? And the idea that work is supposed to be this structured thing and it's based entirely on ranks and organizational charts and doing things because that's the way we've always done them. Well, if I have an innovation and I know that the way you've always done it is, you know, somehow you manage to still be in business despite that. I'm not going to just sit and take that for very long. I'm going to find an employer that values me and I'm going to go there. So what's happened is you have the millennials, the Zers, and all the other groups that are following them. They are now the absolute majority of not only the corporate workplace, the Mm -hmm. service workplace, the manufacturing workplace, the public safety workplace, any other workplace, they're also the absolute majority of the entrepreneurial and innovation space. Absolute majority, not even a plurality, the majority are millennial and younger. So not only, they now control. And I like to say we, because uh, us at the cusp end of the Gen Xers, we were the ones who uh, were there with uh, Dan Janelle and Al Gore at the internet when it first started. Uh, that's a joke I like to tell. Um, and uh, we now see that if you look up to the earlier, the earlier Gen Xers, you look at the baby boomers, you're not really seeing the older generations that are still in the workplace and still in the entrepreneur space resisting it so much, but they're saying, hey, wait a minute. I want to make a difference too. I want to feel like my work is valuable. I want to work for somebody who appreciates me and gives me the room to feel like that I can be an innovator, I can be a contributor, and to know that I make a difference. So the hierarchy and the because I said so, and that's the way we've always Mm -hmm. done it. Well, that's if, if everything I've described to you up until now hasn't put paid to that, I have a feeling the great resignation will put the final nail in the, co- in the coffin. 
It is so true because you know we're seeing some really cool you know business models coming literally out of the concept of employees not wanting to work for jerky bosses. Yeah, um, one of my favorite companies is um, watching is We Are Rosie. They are a um, it's really, they are a company that provides marketing talent into organizations. So the idea is, let's say you would traditionally go to a marketing agency and say, oh, we need X, Y, and Z and stat. Instead of that, they'll offer to put together the same team and embed them into your company. Now, it's all done virtually, and it's kind of cool for them because they were doing it virtually ahead of COVID, and then COVID just kind of locked in their business model for them. Um, they so stick to it. But what's really cool for how they do this is not so much the service, which they've been growing. You know, they've been over doubling every year. I think last year they jumped to like 15, 20 million. Yeah. Um, but the cool thing is they provide all their talent, whether you're working for five hours a week or a full-time, they don't let anyone work more than 40 hours. Um, no overtime, nothing like, Hey, you can't, you know, um, they give everyone access to benefits. So you're doing five hours a week for like one client for them, you know, and you get to do whatever else you want. You have access to healthcare. You have access to other benefits. They're providing this whole thing to be flexible to the needs of their talent. And it is incredible because the amount of work they had to do to fit that, to make it so they could do that was there. But then because they put that work so much into being efficient in being a efficient employee, you know, basically making employees happy and contractors happy as employees and be, making them feel as part of the company, they're gaining it back in just client work after client work after client work. And that's the kind of the cool thing you're seeing out there. You're seeing some companies that are like, you know what? If everyone's going to you know, complain about it, why don't I just make it my business model? You know, why, yeah. don't I make it, why don't I have fun with this? Why do I complain? Let's have fun. And surprise, if you do the work, you can get a good business out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the great resignation, I've been studying that pretty intently for many reasons. One of which is that during my time in the cor corporate workforce, I was branded as Unemploy unemployable, high <laughs> maintenance, uh, unable to understand the company's mission statements. Well, I, yeah, I'm, gee, I'm so sorry that I'm not going to wrap my hands around bullshit, okay? <laughs> that, that's, that's how I looked at it. Gee, if me, if me having innovative ideas and wanting to make a difference here makes me unemployable and high maintenance and can't understand the company mission statement, well, then I guess your mission statement is to fail. So bye. <laughs> I didn't have the testicular fortitude, the time to just put it in exactly those words. I also did not have the knowledge or even know what questions to ask to accelerate my way into full bore entrepreneurship that I could have gotten out of there two years sooner. But that's, but that's what we're seeing here. Now, going back to the great resignation, I think people are looking at those types of things where they may not feel they fit in, whether because the culture is not something that works for them, mm -hmm. they don't feel like they're appreciated, or 
this, you know, they're doing something that's not really what they want to do in life, having tried it and discovered this really is not their brilliance and really is not their passion, or may just be at that natural place. As we know, people in their careers will statistically change your career somewhere between four and six times as their brilliance, passion, and interests evolve. So the great resignation, I've seen several studies and documentaries that show what we may actually be seeing is the great reshuffling. Yeah. The great resignation is not, is not people saying, ah, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. I'm going to go sit on my couch and watch the Steve Wilco show all afternoon. It's not that. It's, uh, it's more like they're saying, pause, pause, pause. I don't, I don't need to put up with this anymore. I, I know I only get to do this life one time. So I'm going to go figure out what it is it's going to be. Maybe it's entrepreneurship. Maybe it's a different job. Maybe it's a different career. I saw a study that shows uh, they pulled people in various industries. And the, the average across was that 53% of the respondents said, if offered, they would accept training for a different type of job. Mm-hmm. 53% of people would willingly do something else. And then you're, want- and then you're wondering why 6% of people have resigned their jobs in the past year. You'd think it'd be higher. No, the stats, you know, of job satisfaction, you know, outside of very few industries, job satisfaction, Satisfaction almost across ages and seniority and et cetera is horrible. And it's been this way. See, the th- crazy thing is everyone's talking about it as now as like it's something new, but people haven't liked working for, you know, for bad, you know, bad managers. Usually it's not even the company they don't like, it's their manager they don't yeah, like. Yeah, I can I can I can tell you this. Um every company I ever worked for, and there were three or four before I became a full-bore entrepreneur, um, my stories of why I got out of there are not about the companies themselves. They're about the managers. My chapter that I contributed to Journeys to Success and Millennial Edition is, uh, is inspired by having a boss who was so awful that the day that uh, they forced me to resign in a way that actually made me eligible for unemployment compensation. I literally celebrate as my second birthday, April 27th. I celebrate every year. And the stories about the company that I worked for for almost five years, if you let me talk long enough, I will tell you all about my, my obtuse idiot moron of a boss's boss. <laughs> and sometimes I, sometimes I phrase it meaner than that. But rarely will you hear me say, the company was poorly managed or they needed to change their product or they needed to innovate and move with the times. You're going to hear the story about how there was some person in the way, some person who caused the problems. And I, and I too, like you, am familiar with the studies that show that people who have quit jobs or people that had regrettable experiences at jobs much more often attributed to their boss or some management yeah. figure than they do to the company itself. You know, it is, it's, it's kind of, you know, given how this is such a repeatable thing, it really kind of shows that, yeah, you know, even going past their direct bosses, it's, 
it has to be from the, you know, they, when we were saying, oh, it's not the companies, but it does have to come from the companies. They know the level of satisfaction is so low because of how their, their employees, their management is behaving. Now, the reality is the reason the management, I speak English, just not well today, um, <laughs> is doing this is because of what's being pushed on them from executives. You know, yeah, this is, you know, we react, you know, when you're in the job, you react to whoever your big boss is. But I do remember, and I feel bad because this guy's now a professor at NYU, but I remember one of the executive VPs pulling, you know, my director of client services at a, one of the uh, big search marketing, you know, when search was going to be the next big thing. Oh. Yep. Um, and we had gotten a client to increase by like 20%, but he had been told he had to make it 40% and he had to sell some technical platform they were building that didn't even work or, you know, that was it. And literally we sat there and this guy like was screaming at my boss who had actually walked the client off the ledge from firing us because of all this push for the technical platform that never worked and all this other stuff. And yeah. I remember just saying they're like, let's see, maybe it's time for me to start my own company. I just uh -huh. wonder. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah, it is the boss. It is your boss, but a lot of times it's the boss's boss. And then the boss, the boss's boss hiring people like them. So then you get that lovely cascading effect. Yeah, yeah um, let's get crappy people down the road. Yep. Oh, my, my, micro example. I remember the date. It was December 5th, 2002. So we're actually closing on the 20 year anniversary of this one. I lived in Southwestern Pennsylvania at the time. And Ooh, that morning, and it was a, you know, that morning, and it was, I believe, a Tuesday or Thursday morning. Can't remember which, but I could look it up on Google. Uh, we got a freak snowstorm overnight. Hadn't even been forecast. Six inches. So a freak snowstorm like that, you know, they don't have the roads clear. You know that when it started falling at night that there were things happening. And uh, the job I had at the time involved organizing external trainings and community meetings. So I'm stuck uh, at home. I lived an hour from work at the time uh, in, a, in a rural area. The roads had not been cleared. There was no way I was going to get out. But uh, this meeting that was being organized for downtown Pittsburgh had to be canceled and 13 people had to be notified. So what did I do? I, uh, I called my boss and I told him what was going on and that I was going to have to deal with this from my internet connection at home. And he said, well, fine, take care of it. So I took care of it. Now, cue an hour later, and I get a call from my same boss. And uh, I'll cut to the point on this because I know we want to cover a couple more things in our time. Uh, his boss, so my boss's boss, apparently came charging out of his office, uh, strutting his chest, reminding everybody that he had a C-suite title saying, why is Adam working from home? We do not have a work from home policy. He either comes in right now or he takes a vacation day. <laughs> so yeah, I went in and dealt with yeah. that one as soon as I could. And I said, no work from home policy. Uh, where's the policy that says I can't work from home? They never addressed that. See, I was one of those people that actually read and kept a copy of their employee handbook. Yep, you and I did. <laughs> so it's like, so it's like, uh, don't don't worry, I won't put myself out anymore and uh, and and go above and beyond. But uh, 
no, I do not accept that I did anything wrong here. Now, if I had the testicular fortitude now, then that I had now, I would have said to my boss's boss, oh, and by the way, Mr. Chief Program Officer, get back in your office and do your paperwork and let the real people handle the work here. Yeah, I, you know, now, I, now I now pause, now pause. I want to make yeah. one more point. And this is, I'm a podcast host. You're a podcast host. We have folks who tune in who have these experiences of things that made them feel the way that I expressed right there. I will share this, even stories that don't necessarily put me in the best light, where sometimes my expression of things may make people think, oh my God, he really said that. These are the things that people viscerally feel. Uh, they sometimes feel they cannot express them because, oh my goodness, what would people say? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they can't even have the conversation about it with themselves. What does that mean? That means they get stuck with the pattern, the looping of it, and they are and they cut themselves off or get cut off from the opportunity to gain the learnings and the growth that come with processing what happened or what they did in their lesson finest hour or the natural raw emotions that they really felt. Because the more you process that, the more you can grow from it and become a better entrepreneur, better corporate leader, better employee, better overall human being. So, and I say this to my listeners, I am your voice. I share these things so that you have the space where you can say, hey, this guy gets it. And you can join with me and we can make a difference for your community market and audience. We can move you toward your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So as podcast hosts, AJ, you and me, what we do is we give people the space where they can stand beside us. And again, without having to proclaim the fact that they had a less than finest hour or that they have natural, raw, visceral feelings, just by saying, this, 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 this AJ Lawrence, he gets it. I like this guy. I'm going to listen to this guy. They still get the benefits of the growth and learning that comes with that journey because they join with you. You know, I think there's so much to that. I think, you know, it's about being honest. You know, I think one of the reasons I like to kind of talk about, you know, my small little violin, you know, when I say, Uh yeah, I did well, but, you know, I thought I was, you know, I, I didn't treat it as well until years later. And then I was like, oh yeah, idiot. Um, because I had expectations or higher, but even going d- more directly, I think so much of us don't want to create a problem that like, look, up until recently, I know a lot of companies that any type of employee complaint was the enemy. You know, that even uh-huh. in semi-decently run companies, it was like, you can't tell anyone, you can't, you know, don't, you know, all this stuff. And that was considered to be good corporate policy. And now all of a sudden, not all companies, obviously, you know, because look, that's, you know, it will take a lot, but this is the game of entrepreneurism. It's about being that, hey, you know, there's a lot of things falling in the sky and those big lumbering things that eat Uh plants and run around and have big, you know, leathery skin. Those dinosaurs, they're dying. Hey, let's be the little furry things that kind of eat their food before they get a chance to eat it. And we'll be the next big thing. Yeah. That's 
the opportunity. It's like encouraging as much as possible. I had um, I had one guest, and his like main point was whatever was the most uncomfortable thing I could hear from a potential customer or an audience member. Um, cause they, they did this really interesting social media based e-commerce thing. He would go out. So he would go after obviously his best customers and kind of bring them into their private thing, but he would also go after his haters, not to attack them, but to like, go, Hey, come tell us, you know, hate on us. Let us, you know, let us really, let's break this down. Come hate. And like, he had this whole process of how to identify, how to go. Now, you know, not like just the pure ones who were doing it from spite, but the ones who were like really had an issue with them and they made it their mission to go find them and not to turn them into customers, but to learn from them. That was it. He yeah, wasn't trying right. to convert them. And it was like, dude, I just got hives going. I couldn't do that. No, no, no. I don't want to hear people make fun. Yeah. You know, it was like, wow, that that's what's available. Look, you you take what other people aren't doing and you make it your own. You turn it into the, you know, you make it your secret weapon. That's the fun of what we do as entrepreneurs. Yeah. I see, I I, I like that. Now, some people are just trolls. Uh, yeah. however, what I like to say is if you have a customer that took time to complain. You, I mean, yeah, you have to sort through whether they're just um, a Karen or Trolls, a Kevin or a yeah. Ken or a troll or something like that. You have to sort that out. So you have to get the wheat from the chaff. But if they're taking time to express what their challenge is, yes. maybe their language about it isn't perfect. And maybe the fact that they're rising to the level of frustration, one question you can ask is, what steps have you taken up until now to attempt resolution of the situation? So if you're a business that uh, is listed on Yelp, for instance, and all of a sudden you get this negative Yelp review, and you have a pretty good sense that this person may be, have a legit gripe, but they're a little over the top with it, that's the first question you can ask is, what steps up until now have you taken to try and resolve it? And you may find that they tried to speak with several people in your organization and got brushed off. And they only took the Yelp finally because nobody else would listen. We could have the whole rest of the conversation, but I think that one point right there says so much. Yeah. 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 I was just thinking the last time I complained online, it was literally because, you know, they, the business had made it impossible you know, for a reasonable, like, what's going on here type of question, you know, they just made it impossible. And the few times I did get someone, they just completely, you know, snowbagged it, standbagged it. I can't yeah. And yeah, I went and I made sure it, you know, <laughs> the, the Yelp and everything on that. That's yeah. Very true there. Yeah. Right. I, um, I, one time I was at a restaurant and I had to ask four times for a menu now, I was sitting at the seat of the table with, I believe, four women. I'm not bragging about that. I'm just saying that was the situation. <laughs> now, now, the, now, the waiter was so busy making sure that the women had menus. And, and candidly, he was peacocking, uh, if anybody knows what that term means. Uh, so by the time I asked four times for a menu, uh, he finally took one of the menus after one of the women had given theirs back, threw it at me and hit me in the arm with it and said, there's your menu. Let me know what you want. 
<laughs> so I tried to complain about that to the manager that fell on deaf ears. Uh, I was there as part of an event and I told the organizer of the event and all he did was defend the waiter and actually tried to get on me because I didn't want to leave a tip. Uh, I felt I was getting no satisfaction. So I went on Yelp and uh, explained the situation. And so what did, and what did the people who ran the management do? They found friends of mine who organized events at their restaurant, went to my friends and said, you tell Adam, he either takes his Yelp review down or we're going to take it out on you. You won't be able to hold meetings at our place anymore. So they went after my friends to get them to bully me. And for that reason, and for that reason, I will never go to Tommy Bahama restaurant again. Not that we're mentioning names, but yes. Not that we're mentioning names <laughs> or anything. Hey, hey, they had three chances. Yeah. And no, as far I mean, and as far and as far as that Yelp review, all they had all they had to say, and this is how they could have actually turned me into uh, turned me into a regular at their establishment was, "Wow, that doesn't sound like how things normally happen here." Uh, would you be able to come back and let us show you a five star experience? And then once they got me back there, they could have converted me, but no. Instead, they had to act all big and bad. And not, the, not, not, I, I won't even wear their shirts now. You know, and the crazy thing is, you know, I, you know, you and I both yeah. know the research, you know, your negative experience and the way they bet, you know, and now of course you're amplifying it because of the podcast. Yeah. You know, you're going to tell this many people, but if they had actually done what you just said, like, Hey, they're just a bad day, misunderstandings come back. We'll, we'll make it good for you. Yeah. That, just that simple thing you probably would have go even further out of your way to talk about how cool they were. Oh, and, I, I, oh, I would, I would have nothing. I would have gone back just on, if for nothing else under the, I got to see this for myself. And, but, mm-hmm. but, 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 Hey, that was the opportunity right there. That, and, and, th- and this probably came from either the general manager at a particular location or some assistant manager who thought that, Attempting to silence public opinion rather than when it was the way to make friends. So mm-hmm. if they had taken the approach that I took or they would have asked that question, wow, I, this stuff you're writing on Yelp, oh my God. Uh, just wondering, um, before you wrote the Yelp review, what steps did you take to attempt to rectify the situation? And I could have told them the whole story. And it would have been one, two, three. And they could have said, oh, oh, they threw a menu at you? Oh, no, 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 no. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. That, no, 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 no. Okay, no, no. Come back and we'll show, we'll show you a five-star experience. That's all they had to do. That's it. They, <laughs> they chose. So uh, to me, when and it's kind of a free-willing conversation you and I have had, and it's been really enjoyable to me. See, this is the true mastermind experience. And this is one of the reasons I was so excited, AJ, to have you on my show uh, is the definition of what you're coming to us with took about five minutes to cover, but it sparked so many different inspirational things. And yeah, this became sort of a uh, a session where we wrap back and forth with some stories. Uh, We told a little bit of the few things like you had to be there to even understand it type stuff. But this is where the mastermind inspiration comes from. So what's great is through the mastermind experience, 
you and I have both shared stories and our listeners have had the opportunity to listen to our stories and say, well, if I'd have been in that situation, if that had been my employee, if that had been my experience in dealing with a vendor or resource, a restaurant, uh, a contractor, if that had been me in that situation, here's what I would have done. And here's the magic of it. It put their brain to work, enabling them to have that conversation with themselves and to think through how that would go about. So they can take that, do save as, put it in a folder somewhere. And if and when they find themselves in that situation, they can open that folder and now they have their blueprint. Now they have their course of action. They have a place at least to start when it comes mm-hmm. to replying to that. So you, uh, so if anything, if me sharing the resource of going to a complaining customer and asking, what steps have you taken up until now to gain satisfaction for your issue? If that in itself is a game changer, sometimes that's the mastermind principles, the small things that make a big difference. So, AJ, we are at the top of the hour here, and I'd love to keep speaking yeah. with you forever. And I know that you and I have uh, had some uh, interesting uh, work to do together, even to make this happen, thanks to the lords of the Internet. So sure. um, what I want to do here as we wrap up here is I want to make people aware of what you do. Uh, I have a podcast, a business creators radio show, and you have a podcast called beyond eight figures. It's a yeah. www. Or I don't know if there's www involved, but I know the URL is beyond eight and then the number eight beyond eight figures.com. And you yeah. have conversations about creating your own success, leaving a legacy and dealing with some of these stories. So, And I love your tagline. We don't just talk about entrepreneurship. We live it. So in addition to everybody uh, tuning and subscribing to my show, I encourage them to join yours as well. You've got a lot of great resources there as well. Uh, Please check it out, everybody. That's beyond8figures.com. With that, AJ Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you, Adam. This was so cool. I've been listening for so long, so it was great to be on the show. Thank you so much. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.